Professor Colin Masters. That's me. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today. Pleasure. So to get started with, you're an expert in Alzheimer's disease? Correct. Can you give me a definition of what Alzheimer's disease actually is? There are two main types. One is an early onset form, which is very rare. It's caused by mutations in genes, which are responsible for the buildup of a peptide in your brain, amyloid peptide. Common form that you're familiar with uh, probably affects 95 to 99% of uh, all cases of Alzheimer's disease is what we call late onset sporadic. And that sort of means it comes on without any rhyme or reason. It's uh, very common. Uh, but it, pathologically, when you look at it, the brain tissue under a microscope, the early onset form and the late onset forms are virtually identical. There are, there are some differences, but not major differences. So the early onset form is genetic caused disease. The late onset form is related to genetic risk factors, but the genes don't actually cause the illness. Would the late onset form have to do with more lifestyle choices early on? That's the point. So at this uh, stage, all we know is there are genetic risk factors that predispose you to the late onset form, but uh, environmental risk factors like diet, sleep, heart disease, and so on, Exercise. very difficult to identify, despite mm. 20 years of intense scrutiny. What are the, are there two different genetic risk factors for both? So for example, if someone is more predisposed to get it early on compared to someone predisposed to get it later, are there yeah. two different genetic risk factors? Yeah. So the, the early onset forms are related to uh, what we call pathogenic mutations in the genes that are part of the machinery of the cell that generates this protein in the brain. That's the glial cell, right? Uh, they're neurons and glial cells. But the uh, buildup of this amyloid peptide in the brain is caused by the overproduction in the rare early onset form. So you, from the time you're conceived, your cells in your body everywhere are making too much of the substrate that generates this small peptide. So uh, in late onset disease, it's, that's not what happens. What happens is as you get older, the machinery that's relating to the clearance of this peptide from the brain fails. Mm. They're the glial cells. And the macrophages and the microglia in the brain are not doing their job that well. Is this the APOE4? The APOE risk factor mm. is a APOE lipoprotein, which in some way determines how this material is cleared out of your brain. How does it clear beta amyloid out of your brain? We don't really understand that yet. So we've been only working on it for 30 years and we still don't understand how the APOE uh, risk factor actually works at a molecular level. So there's very intense research going on right now, but uh, the actual mechanism is still very enigmatic. It's quite strange that beta amyloids a thing at all does the body actually use the beta amyloid protein for yes, anything does it have a yes absolutely it's a fundamental part of a much larger precursor molecule called APP amyloid precursor protein and that is used by the nerve cells and the synapses to encode memories in other words learning memories you tell me you're a psychologist you should know what Studying the word psychology. <laughs> psychologists. That's what the psychologists study, and uh, psychologists for years have been looking at how do we learn and how do we memorize things. And it turns out that the way the brain works is that the synapses in the brain are either excitatory or they're inhibitory, and they're either strong or they're weak. And this molecule the APP molecule that gives rise to the amyloid peptide is used at the synapse to make it strong. So the two sides of the synapse adhere more rigidly together. 
So there's one molecule on one side, one molecule on the other side. And that's where, do you know this word called the engram? Have you heard of that? Mm. It's an, a memory trace. It's where if I'm trying to teach you something, either visually or uh, verbally, you have to see this information coming into your brain and it has to be stored somewhere. And this is what this APP molecule does. It's a fundamental part of the machinery for learning and memory in the brain. And what happens is over, as you get older, in most cases of Alzheimer's disease, the machinery that clears this, it's a waste product. After the synapse has done its work, it breaks down and part of the breakdown of it is this peptide, the A-beta, beta amyloid. And that just builds up only by about 5%. So as you get older, the clearance mechanism in your brain fails by, or becomes less efficient by only a few percentage points. But that's enough to allow the peptide to increase. And when it gets stuck in the brain and increases, it forms these plaques, which we can see under a microscope. And uh, that's the signature of Alzheimer's disease. And at the same time, the plaques are driving another change in the brain called a neurofibrillary tangle. And so the A-beta peptide is on the outside of the cell, near the synapse where it was born. And on the inside of the cell, there's an aggregation of another protein called tau, which it ultimately aggregates into these tangles. Now, today, we can measure in your blood and in my blood the remnants of both the A-beta and the tau in your blood as a signal that something's going wrong in your brain. That's what I do. We, we, we spend all of our time now, a lot of our time, looking at people who are on the pathway towards Alzheimer's. Many years sometimes decades before they actually get Alzheimer's disease. So we can do a blood test, we can take a sample of your cerebrospinal fluid, or we can uh, take a uh, uh, image of your brain using a positron tomography and actually see the amyloid building up in your brain. Each of these tests has got different sensitivities and specificities. But today, we're in a position where we can uh, reliably make a call on whether this person is in the preclinical stages of Alzheimer's disease or not. So if the beta amyloid you're saying has got to do with learning, does that mean it starts in the hippocampus? No, it starts in that area of the brain where learning takes place. It's not the hippocampus. The hippocampus is that part of the brain which is responsible for spatial orientation mm -hmm. and memories. So the area of the brain which is highly specialized for the learning process is in the parietal and frontal lobes of the brain. And there's a network in the brain called the default mode network. DFM. Have you heard of that? Yeah. Okay. So the DFM, default mode DMF, <laughs> D, DMN, hmm. default mode network. network is that area of the brain which is charged with this parietal frontal connectivity in which the engram, the learning traces, are laid down and that DMN is in, <laughs> is in communication with the hippocampus. Yeah. So we see this amyloid starting first in the uh, parietal area of the brain on the dominant hemisphere, the bit of the brain that you use most. So if you're right-handed, it's the left right. hemisphere. Mm -hmm. In the dominant hemisphere of the brain, that's where uh, the amyloid starts to occur. And then the tangles come subsequent to that in those areas in which the hippocampus projects into those areas where the amyloid is causing trouble. I'm pretty sure it was once thought that if you're right brain dominant, you're more creative. If you're left brain yeah. dominant, you're more emotional. But that was disproven, right? I, I, I don't. Uh, I'm not an expert yeah. on, on that sort of thing. But, mm. yeah, but clearly, handedness, whether you're right or left-handed, yeah. is a very important thing. Mm. And we can see in individuals with different, 
you know, what we call uh, variants of uh, Alzheimer's disease. Sometimes it doesn't start in the parietal lobe. Sometimes it starts in the frontal area of the brain. Now, it's not clear why, but you know, we can see it. And it's that area of the brain which is probably just because it's metabolically most active. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, because it was most used. I mean, yeah. So, so this well. area of the brain, which is highly susceptible for developing the changes, is about 25% more metabolically active for the whole of your life mm. than uh, other areas of the brain. I mean, even during sleep, it's not really completely turned off either. Not at all. Mm. No, but uh, the interesting thing is that during sleep is when the, the machinery in the brain for getting this stuff out of your brain is most active. Mm. So it's like uh, the washing machine of your brain. You That's go to from sleep. the spinal fluid, right? Yeah, the, mm. yeah. It's called the glymphatic system of the brain, where uh, the, the the waste products which accumulate in the interstitial fluid of the brain outside the nerve cells mm. get washed out of the brain, particularly during sleep. I think today most people don't really um, put an importance on sleep. Uh, there's that there's a thing going oh, around yeah. now no no it's... there's a lot of sleep specialists now studies oh i understand that but what i'm saying is most people think you know to get somewhere in life you've got to grind all night only sleep for an hour then grind all day and all night again it's like that rat race to become yeah this thing that they think they want to become but eventually that will kill you if you if you choose to only sleep three five hours a night yeah it's not something you can choose it's sort of like it's uh it's part of your uh innate uh mechanisms of the brain i mean i've known many people who can get it for their whole lives leading uh and never get dementia but only uh say they sleep three hours at night but that's not true what what's happens is that they catnap during the day mm. And they catch up on this, uh, you know, they'll go off for half an hour and just, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just relax for a while. Hey, I could get seven hours a night and I'll still nap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but but there are a lot of people looking seriously now at uh, whether sleep deprivation in any way predisposes you to Alzheimer's disease, mm. and the uh, the answer is not clear at all because as you develop Alzheimer's disease your sleep rhythms do change. It's, it's the uh, question of all of biology is if you are doing just cross-sectional studies on human populations and you see factor A and you try and tie it into factor B, you don't know if that association is causal or just as a consequence of getting the disease. I read a book called Why We Sleep. I'm trying to remember the author's name. Skipped my head, but a yeah. quote he's put on it is, being awake is low cognitive damage right? <laughs> because yeah. being asleep, that's when all the repair happens. But when we're awake, that's when all the, all that damage happens. Yeah. We stay awake. For well, a lot of the consolidation of what you've learned, the engram, what you have learned during the day mm. gets consolidated at night. Now with sleep, is there a differentiation between people and what I mean by that is, so let's just say someone's very active and then someone's not so active. Would their sleep still, would the sleep differentiate? No, I don't think so. But active in what sense? Physically active? Yeah, physically active, so exercise. Mm, well, you know, physical activity is relate, relates directly to cardiovascular health. Mm. So the more exercise you get, and if you control your body mass, the less vascular risk factors you develop. And so, but that plays into the whole picture of the aging brain. Mm. But that's not Alzheimer's. It's, Alzheimer's is a different process completely. Now, there's a difference between a normal aging brain where you have these normal memory deficits. So, I don't know, maybe you have to take a, a shopping list when you go shopping now. Maybe you, you no, get it's not normal. The it's word. not normal for people to lose their memory as they get older. It's definitely abnormal. No, I mean, for example, taking a shopping list to go shopping. I do that all the time. Yeah. That's normal. Yeah. But yeah. there's that, and then there's people who forget where they are or forget why they're yes, going. Yes, yeah. yes, mm. yes. Completely mm. uh, different uh, types of memory loss. Mm. But uh, the ability to remember 
lists, for example, is something that does not necessarily get impaired as you get older, mm. unless you're incubating Alzheimer's disease or you have vascular damage to the brain. Mm-hmm. So this beta amyloid, we have natural things within us to help push it away or wash it away. Yeah, you it's a it. very highly expressed protein mm. peptide in the brain. So there's a lot of it there. Mm. And it's turning over all the time. Do we have anything at the moment? I think it was uh, very recently, maybe about a year, a year, maybe two years ago, it was uh, aducanumab. Is that how yes. you pronounce it? What is the clinical... I've heard there was a bit of controversy behind it when the FDA first released it because... Absolutely. But this is what I do. This is my bread and butter. Mm. So, you know, we now have these monoclonal antibodies directed at the A-beta. I call it A-beta. You're calling it beta amyloid. It's yeah, the same, sorry. <laughs> same thing. A-beta is the target. And we are pretty confident in saying it is the cause of Alzheimer's disease as it builds up. You take these or you're given these antibodies to this uh, peptide and it helps the body clear it from the brain. Aducanumab was given uh, accelerated approval in, uh, I think it was mid-2021. mid, mid It ran into huge problems in the regulatory process in the US and eventually uh, the payers, that is the insurance companies and Medicare in the US said, we're not going to pay for this. But the next antibody to be developed by another company called Lacanumab was given accelerated approval this year, early this year. And it has a slightly better profile in safety and side effects than aducanumab. And that is the favorite one for development right now. It will almost certainly be registered fully in the US in the next few months. And then it will be brought into Australia through the regulators here, the Therapeutic Goods Administration. What kind of clinical trials have they been doing on this? Uh, what did you call it? Not the other one? Is it Lamy? How do you say it? Lamicanumab? Uh, Lacanumab. What kind of clinical trials have they done on that? I mean, if it's you so name fast it, track. they've done no, they've done beautiful clinical, typical classical clinical trials, mm-hmm. usually uh, lasting about eighteen months. Okay. You go on into a double-blind uh, phase at the beginning. Some people get placebo. Some people get the active ingredient, and you uh, look at the results at the end of it. It's it, it's very clear-cut. This monoclonal antibody is actually working. It slows down the rate of cognitive decline, and then we have an argument as to whether it's clinically meaningful or not. Oh, and it clearly, uh, all the signals in the brain of the disease process itself slowly go in the right direction towards normality. Mm. Now, all the data we've got so far is telling us that it's going to work better in people in the earliest possible stages. And in about three weeks from now, we're going to be looking at the results of another antibody which has been trialled in the US and in Australia, called Solonuzumab. And we'll get the results in about three weeks from now. And that is the world's first secondary prevention study using these class of antibodies. And if that works, so when I mean secondary prevention, we're taking people in their 60s and 70s who are entirely cognitively normal superficially anyway. But we know that they have got uh, the buildup of this amyloid in their brain because we can see it on a PET scan. And we've taken those individuals, nearly 1,100 of them, uh, about 100 here in Melbourne, 1,000 in the US, and we've been studying them for nearly 10 years with this antibody being given by the intravenous route on a monthly basis, for the duration of the study for each subject was on average four and a half years. And we're going to get the results in three weeks. Wow. If it works, it'll revolutionize 
the field. Is this drug still for early early onset Alzheimer's disease? No. So solanizumab was trialed in uh, full-blown dementia and early mild cognitive impairment. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the results there weren't that great. It had some effect. It had a beneficial effect of slowing of about 10 to 20%. But that was deemed at the time, at the doses that they used, to be not sufficiently worthwhile to keep giving it to this population of people with overt clinical cognitive impairment. But the trial in the preclinical stages went ahead. And that's what I've been working on for the last nearly 10 years. Now, this, is, this wouldn't be a cure. This would just be a treatment, right? This is, so you have to be careful what you, uh, how you use these words. The word prevention means delaying onset or stopping it occurring, right? That's one thing. A cure is where you've got the disease and you do something, intervene, and you get better. So we do not have any cures for Alzheimer's at this moment in time. What we have is a series of monoclonal antibodies directed at the A-beta peptide, which slow it down once you've got the disease. In uh, data from aducanumab that you mentioned, which has now been given to people for uh, more than four or five years, we're just now beginning to see the results of uh, that. And guess what happens? If you're on the highest dose and you stay on it for four or five years, your rate of change stops. You do not get worse at all. But by the time that happens, you've got severe dementia. So you end up you know, in a state, a steady state where the... De- the dementia is not progressing at all, but, it's not but you're better. not getting better. Mm. So it's clear to us right now that to be to do something effect, effective right now, efficacy, we have to go as early as possible and we have to try and stop the disease getting a hold in your brain. And it looks like we hope that we will succeed. These enzymes, do they clear these plaques? Is that what they're doing? Enzymes? What do you mean enzymes? The um, enzymes that are within the drugs, are they clearing these? No, plants? these are antibodies. Antibodies, sorry. These are antibodies. Yeah, antibodies. Sorry. They bind to the peptide, mm-hmm. and then that activates the signals in your brain for the cells of the brain, which are we call them professional uh, macrophages. These are the microglia that come along, and uh, they see the antibody bound to this peptide, and they get all excited because the antibody is bound to the peptide, and they take it and get rid of it. That's what they do. That's the way evolution has directed them to work. If these antibodies are helping clear beta amyloid, but you've already got these tangles you're talking about, right? is, there, is this also going to be rectified, or is these tangles kind yeah. of... So, so what we can say at this point, if you get the amyloid down to normal then uh, the tangles also tend to disappear and uh, normalize. So the signals for tau aggregation in the brain decrease in parallel when you remove the amyloid. It's the tau protein that's causing that's the right. tangles, right? What is tau protein? Tau is part of what's called the cytoskeleton mm-hmm. of a nerve cell. So to get from the cell body into the synapse, you need these long cables along which materials travel from the cell body to the synapse. And uh, these things are called tubules, microtubules, and that's where tau sits. It has a structural function in the microtubules of moving cargo around the brain, not only down from the cell body to the synapse, but also bringing waste products and other things back from the synapse back to the cell body. I read a, a study of one of yours, only briefly. It was it was a MAO, MAO PET scan, I think it was. Yeah. I think you. I think that was just published. Yeah, possibly. What were you doing within that study? It was something to do with the 
with the with the glial cells. I That's think. right. Yeah. yeah. So so the the ligand that was used in that PET yes. study yeah. was targeting an enzyme called monoamine oxidase B, mm. and that is an enzyme which is used by glial cells. And uh, when the glial cells proliferate, the amount of the enzyme goes up. So if you've got a tracer that binds to the enzyme, it's a signal of glial activity. Mm-hmm. And so what we see in that study is, as you would expect, uh, that uh, as the damage is building up in the brain, the glial cells respond. Mm-hmm. So you can see a change on a PET scan. But we have much better ways of looking at glial responses now by just doing a blood test. We can measure other proteins that come from glia in your blood. We can say, oh, well, you have a problem here because this glial protein that we measure in the blood is increasing. If someone is more predisposed to Alzheimer's disease through the APO, let's just say they got, um, I know you can get one copy, but it's more rare to have two copies. But if you've got right. two copies, you're more predisposed okay. to get the Alzheimer's disease. So there are three, what we call haplotypes of APOE. Mm. Two, three, and four are the common haplotypes. And there's just two amino acid differences between uh, a person who's two, a three, and a four. So the way that genetics works is that you inherit one from your mother and one from your father. If your mother and father are both carrying the E4 allele, you end up with a, a double banger so that you are a 4-4. Four, four. That's the worst genotype to have. Or you might get a 3 from your mother and a 4 from your father, and you're a heterozygous, so you're a 3-4, and that's quite common. If you get a 2 and a 2 from your mother and a 2 from your father, that's protective. So we now know that the 2 haplotype is protective and the four haplotype is you know the risk factor and we still as i was saying at the beginning we still don't fully understand why just two amino acid changes in this uh, apolipoprotein e uh, is is responsible for the buildup of the amyloid in the brain presumably it's through some failure of the clearance mechanism it's just only by 5%, though. You know, we're talking about uh, a process that takes about 30 to 40 years to, to build up. So your your rates of production and rates of clearance are just off by about two or three percentage points. But that's enough. That's where the APOE uh, conundrum comes in. Mm. And I think that we will find out yeah, sooner or later, the exact mechanism, and it's probably related to genetics, and it's probably related to somatic mutations. As you get older, your DNA repair mechanisms don't work as well as when you're much younger. That brings me to diet. So if someone has a more so an APOE4 yeah. uh, genetic compound, they should steer away more from fatty foods like trans fats and that than someone who's got APOE2 right but they're not really going to know that they have it unless they yeah, get but, tested but we have no evidence no good evidence at this point that diet is a major factor in whether you get Alzheimer's disease or not and it's not related to it's uh, the APOE effect is independent of diet now there are many people including our collaborators in Australia who think that diet is important, but we only have some evidence, but not compelling evidence, that diet is a risk factor for the buildup of this peptide in the brain. Would diet be more so a um, a subtrait to, let's just say, exercise and sleep, basically? No, but it's exercise, sleeping, and diet and body mass are the and diabetes and things are prime cardiovascular risk factors. And so they are clearly tied into uh, diseases that affect the blood vessels, either the large blood vessels or the small blood vessels. But that is a different process than Alzheimer's disease. Mm. 
Now you brought this piece of paper in before. I would like to talk about that because it shows how there's a differentiation between sexes when it comes to dementia. Yeah. Do we understand? This is called epidemiology, Mm. right? So if you survey Australia's population and you say, just ask them a very simple question as to the incidence and prevalence of dementia, it's very clear that women are more affected than men for dementia. Dementia is a generic term. It's like saying, well, it's cancer. It's an umbrella term. It's an umbrella term. Mm. But drill into it, what you find is that the men have all been dying from cardiovascular disease at a rate much higher than women. Mm. And that's why the women are living longer. On average, four or five years gap between the mean age at death of a male and a female. Mm. That's why there's more dementia in women. Do you think that could just come down to body mass in terms of the cardiovascular issue? Men are bigger, so we tend to have... Um... No, but, no we, we, we understand uh, cardiovascular disease very well now. Mm. And we, our society has moved to a position now where most of the cardiovascular risk factors are identified and can be controlled and have been controlled over the last 50 years or so. So the incidence of cardiovascular disease in our general population, high blood pressure, heart attacks, and strokes, are all decreasing. As we look after our cardiovascular risk factors, that's exercise, body mass, and all all those things, diabetes. Uh, what we can't control is age itself. Unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> you know, we are getting all older. Mm. So, you know, if you look at the average age at death of the Australian population, you put COVID to one side because uh, during the pandemic, we took a big hit on the uh, mean age at death. But uh, it's going up, 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 up all the time mm. over the last 50 years almost. Was there a spike at all in dementia due to COVID? I only no. ask because no. there wasn't. No. I only ask because I feel like that would have caused people more depression, more stress, and I wonder if that's a catalyst. There for are dementia. more. Uh, there are some uh, publications suggesting that the uh, rates of reporting dementia increased during the pandemic, but that's simply because of better case ascertainment people going to the doctors, the doctors figuring out, oh, this person's got a bit of cognitive impairment. Is there a doorway to dementia through uh, depression and anxiety and, sh- and just life stress? No. There's not? No. So I'm thinking with depression people, and- People who develop Alzheimer's disease are often very depressed. Not Alzheimer's specifically, just dementia? No, I'm talking about specific diseases. Okay. So... When I'm talking specific diseases, I told you before, 60% Alzheimer's, 20% vascular disease, 20% another condition which we haven't touched on is frontotemporal dementia. Mm. What was the name of the film actor? Uh, Bruce Willis. Bruce Willis. Yeah, He's got an FTD, Mm. apparently. That's Mm. as it was reported. He's got one of, you know, it's uh, one of the, he's one of the 20% who developed FTD. And as you get older, these three major causes uh, increase in prevalence and they all get mixed up by the clinicians because they're very hard to differentiate clinically. Yeah, that's actually, now that I think about it, it's true because when someone tells me this individual has dementia, I think to myself, okay, what dementia do they have? Yeah, but it's like saying, oh, this person's got cancer. Oh, yeah. Well, what does Which that cancer? mean? cancer, yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. Could be breast, breast cancer, lung <laughs> prostate, cancer. Prostate, lung, yeah, it could be anything. There, there's a hundred different And the, the way of treating a cancer these days is, you know, it's very much uh, specifically targeted to the type of cancer and the person themselves. Because the way you would target Alzheimer's is different and, than target. But this is the way that we are going to move in the dementia space. It's happening right now. These monoclonal antibodies, which are 
disease-modifying therapies. We can actually tailor the dosage to the individual based on the readout of the blood tests or the PET scan or the CSF test. What's the CFS test? That's taking a sample of your cerebrospinal fluid okay, yeah. with a lumbar puncture and measuring these uh, peptides and the tau protein, mm-hmm. A-beta and tau, and other markers in the CSF. Mm. We can do it in blood. So that's what we're, that's, you know, the revolution is now here. We can do it. So we're kind of in a very sharp turning point when it comes to dementia. Yeah. Right. Where can you see it going? So you've been, how long have you been studying Alzheimer's slash dementia? 45 years. 45 years. So yeah. you've, you've oh, seen the worst of it. Longer than you've yeah. been alive. <laughs> yeah, very much. So you've seen the best of it and the worst of it, basically. Uh, yeah. So judging how you've seen this 45 years go by, could you kind of make an offhanded, not prediction, but a guess where we could be in the next 45 years? Yeah. So, you know, the, the objective here is to, uh, to prevent uh, Alzheimer's disease developing full stop. And <clears throat> we can see the way forward, whether it will be implemented or not, not clear yet. Uh, the cost may be so prohibitive putting everyone on a monoclonal antibody after the age of 65 would be a, a very big uh, ask, any health system to to do that. So I don't know what's going to happen, but, you know, that's not my job. My job is to <clears throat> work with my colleagues to prove that it is, in principle, a disease that can be contro- controlled. You use the age 65 a lot. That, that seems to be... Yeah, well, that's historical. That's the definition of, kind of you know, the cut point between a middle-aged individual and an elderly individual. The new cut point is more like 75, as you know. Is that just because we're getting better at treating? Yeah, because we're get, as a society, we're getting healthier and healthier as we, you know, the, the diseases that were typical of your father and my father's generation have shifted their demographics completely. Mm. You, know, the, uh, you know, 50 years ago, the average age at death was in the people in their 60s. Yeah, it's... it's yeah, I mean, it's, it's a young. huge, huge shift in the demographics of our population. That would only give me just over 30 years. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, 200 years ago, people died in their 30s and 40s to get through to 60 three score years and 10 was remarkable back then. The step we've taken in 100 years is incredible. I think my mother-in-law is now 108. And still alive. Still alive. She's going strong. And she's got no... She uh, hasn't got Alzheimer's. No mild cognitive impairment. Oh, she's, you know, she has some issues, but but she doesn't have Alzheimer's. That's crazy. So she's, well, 108. If I think of 108 years ago, what? That's World War, just around World War One. That's right. World War Two. That's Vietnam. right. She's yeah, seen. That's right. She's seen it all. Wow. Anyway, uh, the uh, you know no the uh, our society is changing. Uh, it's, it's it is a revolution. But that age 65. Is there any? disease or chronological positions that could set you in order to have it earlier than 65? Well, I've told you that there's a rare form of uh, genetic causation which occurs at uh, in, in your 20s and 30s. Mm. And the other major cause is genetic, which we haven't touched on. Everyone with Down syndrome gets Alzheimer's disease. Did you know that? Everyone. Everyone. With Down syndrome. Is that a chromosome issue? Yeah, because the gene for this APP molecule, the A-beta, is on chromosome 21. Down syndrome is a trisomic replication, triplication of chromosome 21. And they make just that much more substrate than a normal individual, or at least a, a, a normal 
deployed uh, individual. Is there something going on with the sacratase there? The so you got what no, is no. It's a it's a the substrate, the molecule itself, the A beta mm. precursor is there's one third extra amount in your brain. So how old? What where? We roughly start building it up in our 50s, I think. We start to build it up in our 50s. 50s? So where would uh, a person with Down syndrome start? They're starting to build it up in their 30s. Whoa. Something of that order. The mean age at onset of a dementia in a Down syndrome person is is around 52. And that's purely because of Alzheimer's? It's purely because they have an extra copy of chromosome 21. What is chromosome 21 made up of? Have we investigated it? Like, oh, yeah, why, yeah. Is, why is it It's fully sequenced. We know exactly what's on chromosome 21. There's, you know, there's several hundred, if not thousand genes on chromosome 21. And most of it's got to do with dementia. No, no, just this one. This is it. This is APP. This is the, this is the molecule which is fundamental for, uh, as I told you, uh, the way that synapses work in the brain. Mm. It's used in every other cell in your body as well, but not the same way as it's being used in the brain. These Down syndrome individuals be eligible to take these medications yes, we talked about earlier. exactly oh. right. Exactly right. And the trials of, of these, what we call passive immunization, these, these antibodies directed at A-beta, in Down syndrome subjects will start very soon. Pretty sure now we've come to the conclusion that A-beta, as you call it, is the causation of No, there's still plenty of people out there who argue with me. What are the arguments against it? They say it's an epiphenomenon. It's not causal. It's something that occurs, but it's not the cause of the disease itself. It's not the cause of the neurodegeneration. I think the evidence is now so strong that most people who really look at this in detail would agree that it, it is the proximal cause. You know, when we talk about causes, there are remote and proximal cause for nearly everything that happens to you or, it, or to anyone, anything physical. So it is the proximal cause. So to play devil's advocate. So, so the remote causes here, you know, we, we've spoken about APOE, but there could be environmental factors. Maybe. They're the remote causes, but the proximal cause is the buildup of this peptide in the brain. And they're arguing the remote causes. They're arguing that uh, A-beta is a byproduct of something that else that's causing the degeneration in the brain. And what is that? They don't, they don't say what it is because they don't <laughs> know what it is. That's a... <laughs> Oh, they you know they wave their hands and they say, oh, it's the mitochondria failing or the uh, the weather or you know. You they know. really say the weather. No, I'm joking. Oh, okay. I'm joking. <laughs> yeah, but they're saying there are environmental factors that uh, you know. It we now know that cancer, most types of cancer, most types of cancer are genetic in origin, but they have an environmental factor. If you go out and burn your skin in the sun, you will eventually develop a melanoma or a basal cell carcinoma or a squamous cell carcinoma because of the DNA injury due to sunlight. Especially if you Okay, but the, the cause of the cancer is in the genes. The genes are damaged by sunlight and you get a cancer. Mm. The diet that you uh, eat determines whether the cells in your gut are properly turned over. If you are on a diet where the cells are turning over too fast and their DNA is not being repaired properly, you run into problems with bowel cancer. The same with prostate. The same with every known form of cancer. There are strong environmental factors, usually, that can be traced. You can see it. If you study the disease, you can, you can identify the environmental factors. We cannot do that in Alzheimer's disease as of today. There are many people looking. Everyone's looking to find the elusive environmental trigger or causation of Alzheimer's, but nobody's identified it. 
It's just these beta amyloids that are building up on our brain. Yeah. Now, that still comes down to genetics, as you were saying, correct? It's, well, the, the genetic risk factor, the number one risk factor is apolipoprotein E, mm -hmm. ApoE. Is there a way we can early on somehow play with this gene so it, it doesn't? Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, first of all, it's a marker mm. of risk. A biomarker. A biomarker. So, you know, you know from the time that you're born whether you're carrying one copy or two copies or zero copies of the bad allele. You know it. Mm. Simple blood test, you can figure it out. What can you do about it? Well, uh, we certainly know that people who are carrying two copies of the apolipoprotein E4, E4 carriage, homozygous, they're at greatest risk. We can take the homozygotes and watch them very carefully as they move in their 40s and 50s. And then if we have a therapy, we would say, okay, you're at particular risk. You should be on one of these therapies that uh, can slow or prevent the onset of the disease. Would that be one of these medications you were talking yes, about? Yes, that's the only thing that we've got today. Mm. We do not yet have other other forms of therapy that we know target uh, the A-beta pathway. Before those three drugs we spoke about earlier, what were our defences against Alzheimer's disease before those drugs came about? None. There weren't any. None? None. You know, we're looking at a disease process closely tied into the aging phenomenon, but it's there is no way of in, up until just in the last year or two. There was twenty twenty one, but you know, but 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 we've been working on this for the last twenty years. In nineteen ninety nine, uh, one of our colleagues was the first to show in a mouse that by manipulating a mouse level of uh, A-beta in a mouse model of Alzheimer's with an antibody, he proved that it was theoretically and practically possible to take an antibody and shift the signal in an experimental animal. That was 1999. How many years are we past that now? Yeah, what, 24 Nearly years. 24, that's what it's taken to get from a... Uh, observation in a mouse to uh, uh, real life intervention in human beings. And we've known about Alzheimer's since. Since Alzheimer. Alzheimer worked on this. 19. 1906. Jeez. So there you go. That's uh, oh. more than 120 years ago. And we've been working on it since, and we've only really come up with answers for it over 100 years later, basically. No, when I started on this uh, project in uh, in the 1970s, there were only a handful of people in the world working on it, and we knew nothing about it. When we made our discoveries of A-beta back in the mid-80s, we and other groups, we, for the first time, identified the molecule that was in these plaques. That's the creation of the new era in research, mid-80s. So from that point onwards, you know, you can talk about how long it's taken to get from there to where we are today. It's 30, 40 years. So pretty much before, was it the 70s you said, you had that handful of people that were working on? Yeah. Before then... There were practically no, no people. No people were looking down microscopes and they could see the changes. Mm. That's what Alzheimer himself did. <clears throat> could see the see the changes, and we could diagnose it uh, after death or from a biopsy of the brain. Mm. But there was no imaging scan. There was there was no there was nothing to uh, indicate how you might treat a disease like this. So if someone had Alzheimer's in their life in, say, the 50s and 60s before all these imaging scans are done, how were they treated? Not treated as in medically, but how were they, say, okay, this individual is... They went into aged care homes. That's it. Put them in a home, throw away the key. Is that more of a 
instigator towards Alzheimer's though? Would that progress the Alzheimer's faster? So no, isolating no, someone? No, no. Well, it certainly doesn't help, put it that way. No, well, that's... It doesn't make you better. That's why I brought up COVID. Yeah, but I, I, you know, uh, this is a, a very insidious and uh, disease in which as you develop the cognitive impairment, your awareness of your condition uh, deteriorates. So, you know, it's not you, the subject, who has to suffer. Mm. It's the person who has to look after you mm. is the one who uh, takes the brunt of the illness. It's so scary. I was thinking isolation might have something to do with That's why I brought up COVID before. I thought possibly isolating someone no. who has Alzheimer's disease no, would just push have, them. There's no evidence for that. So we spoke a lot about Alzheimer's disease. Going to vascular dementia a yeah. little bit. That study there showing how females are more likely to, to have... They are more likely to have Alzheimer's because the men have been dying with vascular disease, coronary heart disease, strokes. That's a, that's a man's disease. But the um, but it's changing. It's the, changing. But the vascular dementia would that be more men? Uh, possibly, possibly. They have a higher cardiovascular risk profile than women. But the women are catching up now to the vascular dementia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We spoke about diet a little before. Could diet and exercise and all those sort of things help with not absolutely, Alzheimer's, but absolutely dementia. that they're critical to protecting your brain. If you if you get rid of all of your cardiovascular risk factors, the small vessels in your brain have got an excellent chance of remaining intact and fully functional until you're in your hundred and twenties. There's no reason for them to fail mm. if you don't have the buildup of Atherosclerosis, you know, changes in the endothelial lining due to cholesterol, which is a dietary issue, or hypertension. Isn't APOE4 a cholesterol gene? Uh, they used to think that, but these days they've gone very quiet on that. Why? Because they were probably wrong. <laughs> No, APOE was always thought of. There are forms of APOE <coughs> which uh, clearly are linked to uh, lipid metabolism. Mm -hmm. And you can get into trouble with cardiovascular disease through that pathway. But if you just take a, a survey of the population and just ask a simple question, does the haplotype, the 234 haplotype, correlate strongly with cardiovascular disease? The answer is, mm, it's nowhere near as what we thought it was 30 years ago. So what what evidence were they basing off that this gene I don't know, was... you have to go back and look at the papers. <laughs> but these days, uh, you know, they're very quiet. The cardiologists are <laughs> very quiet about APOE and, and uh, cardiovascular disease. Now, cholesterol has been, I would say these days, a thing that's part of our diet and people seem not to be afraid of it anymore they say uh, i think yeah but it's controllable through statins no what i was trying to put forward is a lot more people these days are going on this you know carnivore diet or sure high cholesterol diet because yeah, they yeah, say yeah but they but in addition to that people are having blood tests to monitor their mm. triglycerides and uh, lipoprotein mm. profiles and if you've got high cholesterol or other lipid abnormalities, you, you take a statin, which helps control the level of cholesterol uh, in your blood. And that, in turn, is one of the major reasons why uh, the demographics of cardiovascular disease are changing in Australia. It's not, sure, diet, exercise, and that are important. There's no question about that. But the introduction of statins has revolutionized the whole cardiovascular field. You know, when I was growing up as, in a, as a young uh, resident in the hospital, every day we saw cases coming in with hemorrhages in their brains and uh, due to hypertension. These days, it's, it's very unusual to see hypertensive brain disease because it's controlled. Blood pressure is now 
generally speaking, under control in the community. Mm. It, it doesn't mean you should obviously not watch your diet. It doesn't mean you should still go out and eat a no, ton you, of cholesterol. No, yeah, and... yeah, yeah, you have to have a balanced lifestyle. Mm. And you obviously don't want to be on statins if you can avoid it. But if you, I mean, I don't know what the uh, average male and female, no, it must be one of the highest prescribed pills in the aging population. Statins. Statins. Mm. The frontotemporal dementia we spoke about before with uh, FTDs. FTDs. There's another protein involved. It's called TDP43. I don't know much about it. You wouldn't know that because yeah. it's, it's a disease that is still very much new. Uh, well, it's been around. You know, we've recognized it. Uh, it's, a, it's a dementia without plaques or tangles, but there are other changes that you can see in the brain that has some resemblance to the tangles. There is an accumulation of tau, and uh, we know that mutations in the tau gene and some of the other metabolic machinery of a nerve cell can give rise to this type of dementia. So it's a purely tau that's causing this dementia? No, it's, uh, it's this other peptide, uh, this other protein called TDP43, which seems to be a reaction to another change which is going on in the brain. We're just at the very beginning of understanding this FTD phenomenon. So that peptide you were talking about, we still don't know much about it and why well, we, it does. Well, we know, uh, we know what its normal function seems to be. It's a DNA binding, a nucleic acid binding peptide protein. Now, the genes that can show you're more proponent to get Alzheimer's disease, are there different genes involved with frontotemporal? Yes. What are these genes? Uh, they're they're like, uh, the, like the rare forms of Alzheimer's which have early onset. In FTD, there's a handful of other genes, TDP, tau, uh, progranulin, and a few other, and a triplication, uh, uh, an expansion of uh, a segment of your DNA. It's a DNA uh, expansion, like in Huntington's disease. Uh, so there's something wrong in one particular area of the of the genome. They cause the syndrome of frontotemporal dementia, but the purely genetic forms are in a minority. There are sporadic forms of FTD that we're just beginning to recognize clinically, but we, we don't understand the therapeutic uh, targets involved there yet. Is this type of dementia still age and sex related? Yeah, there's more males and uh, it occurs generally at a younger age than in Alzheimer's disease. But but there is a strong age-related phenomenon going on there as well. So frontal temporal isn't really age-specific. Spe- uh, it can sort of happen. It's not, when you say age-specific, we, we talk about age-related. Well, what I mean by age-specific is, so Alzheimer's disease is generally thought to be 65 above. Yes. Uh, frontotemporal, so this could happen. Let's just say the mean above, the mean age uh, uh, for most cases of FTD are in their fifties and sixties. The mean age for Alzheimer's disease is in seventies uh, and eighties. We have coping mechanisms for vascular dementia. We not really Alzheimer's. There's treatments we have now. They're coming. They're coming. Do we have any at all for frontotemporal? No, zero. No treatment whatsoever. Specific disease-modifying therapies for FTD do not exist. But there's a lot of research going on, and uh, uh, the the treatments may emerge from uh, the new technologies around genetic silencing, using molecules to inhibit the uh, replication of a particular protein in the brain, for example. If you're silencing a protein in the brain, could there be any, if it helps slow down this dementia, does it have any other side effects? Sure. Every drug known to man has got side effects. Mm -hmm. It's all to do with doses and how you administer it, how often, and so on and so forth. 
So, uh, sure, uh, you know, we, the, there are rare forms of dementia. The, the other one that I work on, I've worked on most of my life, is uh, a disease called Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease. Does that ring a bell? No, not at all. Mad cow disease. Mad cow disease. Mad cow disease. That's another type of dementia, much, much rarer than FTD or Alzheimer's. It occurs at one in a million, but it's an infectious protein. How is that transmitted? Well, there are. it's like the same story in Alzheimer's. The, uh, there's a very uh, few cases of mutation in a gene called the prion protein, PRP, uh, which if you inherit a mutation there, it will cause the protein to aggregate and develop into this disease. Most cases are sporadic, and we don't understand how they occur but we know they're infectious. But the most plausible explanation so far is that because it is occurring at a rate of one in a million, it's the result of a spontaneous uh, mutation in one of the genes, one of the neurons in your brain is not repairing the protein DNA properly and it gets the abnormal mutation running in it. If it's infectious, it can be passed from person to person? Potentially, yes. How? Uh, because it's uh, an infectious protein. You never heard of infectious proteins? I have. It's just it's crazy for me to think about this type that's of why, That's why, you know, mad on. cow disease is, uh, you know, we've gone to extraordinary lengths to stop uh, transmitting uh, that disease through the blood. When the mad cow disease epidemic was a microepidemic, uh, blew up in the United Kingdom in the late 1900s, 1990s. We had to take action to stop transmission from human to humans through the blood supply. There was always a first case. So do we understand how this individual would have got the very first case? The average case is a result of a spontaneous mutation in one copy of the DNA in your brain. There's genetic causes where you know you inherit a genetic abnormality from your mother or father in this particular gene that predisposes you or actually causes the disease. So it's very similar to what we see in Alzheimer's disease. And we now know that this protein A-beta has got some infectious type qualities to it. Wow. So we now realize, and we've described in the world about 100 cases of children who had neurosurgery and had grafting of material into their brains as children, and then 30 or 40 years later, develop a very aggressive form of Alzheimer's disease. And is this in Western, uh, Western yeah, countries? Yeah, all around the world. We've got probably... Uh, half a dozen cases in Australia. And is this still a gene-related issue, these children that are developing beta amyloid so early? Well, they develop it when they're 30 or 40 years after they've been implanted with the seed of this A-beta from, from the graft that went in. That's insane. So wait, how old would these children be by the time it's... 30 or 40 years, so oh. they're in there. They're young individuals, middle-aged individuals who develop a very aggressive form of uh, Alzheimer's disease. But this is pretty rare. Uh, we've seen about half a dozen cases in Australia yes. so far. That's, that's, st that's still too many. Yeah. Well, um, what's crazy about children developing it is you wouldn't really expect a child so you have a beta on their brain. So by Why the not? time... So no, but, no the, these are children who've had a, a dura mater graft inserted into their brain. So somebody else has died, the, the dura mater was taken out of their skull and then cut up into little pieces. And the neurosurgeons back in the 60s and 70s used those grafts to repair it. damage in a child's brain. But the graft itself had seeds of the A-beta in it from a person who had Alzheimer's disease. There seems to be a bit of an ethical issue there 
I feel. Well, they don't do it anymore. Yeah, obviously, yeah. But even to do it, what did you say, 70s? That still seems a bit... No, no, it was a common practice back then. Whoa. No, it's ethically, it was, it was, there's nothing wrong with it because you're making people better. But you were still... But they, they didn't know back in the 60s and 70s that this type of uh, infectious protein process existed. So now that we don't do that anymore, but we still seem to be seeing cases of it, as you said, there's still half a dozen. Yeah, but that's as a result of their exposure back in the 60s and 70s. Mm. Well, this, has been, this has been a crazy conversation. I feel like as much as dementia that I've read about, you've still taught me a lot. So, yeah, I really do thank you for coming on the podcast. It's It's been really good talking to you. Uh, if people want to learn more about Alzheimer's disease or dementia and they... Uh, want to get in touch with you how can they get in touch with you well one person at a time <laughs> one please one person at a time i don't know uh you know, uh well they they can contact me through the flory institute or through the university of melbourne they'll find me they just google me they'll find out how to get hold of me mm. professor colin masters i thank you very much for joining me on the podcast today it's been very fun learning from you and talking with you and thank you pleasure thank you